Hey, Marty. Hey, Michelle, how's your day going? <laughs> I need a Xanax, and it's too early for that. Michelle, how much time does do those dogs take up in your life? I'd like to begin by asking you a few questions about how this whole mess got started. Do you remember seeing him for the first time? Yeah. You guys here on vacation? Certainly are. Welcome to the end of the world. Um, a lot. They take up a lot. And not only that, but Mike had to go in late today. He had to help. There's no way to take both of them to the vet alone. They have so much anxiety over strangers and stuff like that due to their past that um, he had to go too. And we have to take them in one at a time because they feed off each other's anxiety. And Jack, the little one, he was the problem today. He was just very anxious and like he's he's still like half feral. So Michelle, yes, you're repl- you're replacing your daughters with dogs to keep the <laughs> to keep the turmoil level in your family at the right amount. Probably, but we've had them for a year. I mean, what do you do? All right, Michelle, this is West Coast Project and episode 511 of season five for the affair, the finale. I know. I can't believe it. Michelle, I'm going to do some, I'm going to list in the show notes, all of the music references and all. There's a guide to all the episodes. If anyone ever wants to go back and look at recaps, there's like a one paragraph recap that someone does some wiki affair wiki. It's a pretty cool little site. If you ever want to review any of the stuff that's in the entire series, actually. Oh, that'd be cool. Um, But before I ask you what you thought of the finale, Michelle, what was your favorite moment of the entire series? It's going to sound like a cop-out, but it's just the truth. It's just the truth. My favorite part of the whole series was the last three minutes of the series. Well, that's a pretty easy answer. It's the true answer, though. What was it before you saw the last episode? Before I saw the last episode, it was... Jeez, I don't know. There was a couple of really good... Parts. I don't know if it was like just. Are you, you're not asking about like a, an episode, right? Just a scene in yeah, an episode. A part, yeah, a little scene, part of a scene. Favorite well, moment that you remember? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, favorite. There wasn't like a lot of favorite moments in this because they were so painful to watch. I think there was a lot of meaningful moments in it. Michelle, I can um, tell you put a lot of work into this. I mean, I really did. I thought about it. But, I mean, I when Noah and Allison first got together, there was a lot of that that was, I guess, poignant. Um, but I can't say any of that was my favorite because it was horrible. The part where Allison cheated on Noah with Cole, that was... There was something really good about that moment, and then of course she ended up getting pregnant. So that kind of there's nothing that's like clean and good in this, you know, just like good that you can feel good all the way around it. Michelle. Yes. Maybe you just see the crescent. I see the whole of the moment. <laughs> and I cannot get that song out of my head. And by the way, I have watched this three times so far, and I'm gonna watch it again. All right, I'll give you a little play of mine. Mine is season one, episode six. It's it's when Max and Noah are at the end nightclub, 
you see if you can remember it. Max is asking Noah how he managed to land Helen, how he managed to attract her. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's doing drugs and stuff. And it's the one where we find out that the Lockharts have uh, the drug business. Right. But my favorite part is at the end, the party. The song? Yeah, I love this song. Yeah. And it's when Noah and Allison are just joyously dancing at that party. So anyway, I thought that I thought it was cool. They have a they have a list of all these musical references in the show, and um, and the scene references are just cool to go back and read. Well, but, yeah, um, that that was another really good one. Not right there, but the one where they. Um, no, you had your chance, Michelle. You had. Now listen, chance. this is important. Where Scotty was singing, do you remember that? Yeah, but you had your chance and you blew it. You had a whole <laughs> week to do this, Michelle. Right, right. By the way, the great Maurice White passed away in 2016, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Aw. Um, all right, Michelle, what did you think of the finale? I'm so annoyed that I liked it so much. I really, really liked it. She, But I'm annoyed. I'm annoyed. Mike, my husband, is really tickled with me over my reaction to this. This was so good. It was cheesy and a little corny, but it was so good. And Mike, we could and maybe should do a whole episode, a whole podcast on the life lessons in just this one episode. It was chock full of so many good tidbits. I mean, they're just like, it's one after the other. I couldn't even keep up. Well, now this is a podcast about it. Now's your chance. Yeah, but it's, I mean, you can't go into each one and why they're meaningful. I mean, there's just no way we'll be here for three hours. But but it it was so good, and I'm so freaking annoyed that it was so good because that shows us that that's what this could have been the whole time. And I think of all the hours that we watched this and talked about this and rewatched this and made notes about this and really dove into it, and it was just really crap. And then they come out with this, and it was beautiful. Corny and cheesy, but but in a real life kind of corny, cheesy way. So that's what I thought about the episode. What did you think? Yeah, I think she stuck the landing. Um, you're right. There is some silliness in it, but it's overall it's infused with happiness and kindness, and even enough kindness to overcome the grumpy Anna Paquin. But yeah, it was it was really good. It was really I mean, it almost pulls it out of the fire and puts it in the wind column for me this last episode. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really sorry though that that they didn't do this enough to keep the audience. Because well, Michelle, you gotta you gotta learn the le- one of the lessons in this episode was to not be hooked hooked up so hung up on the past that you can just enjoy the present. I think Helen and Noah came to that realization. They probably shouldn't be together, but they said, hey, we just like being together. Let's be together. So if you like it, just like it. That's how I'm going to look at it. Okay. You don't have to You don't have to say it was good and it made me sad that the other 52 episodes didn't measure up. I'm just going to take it as being good. Well, you're more generous than I am about it. 
because it it was so good that it reminded me of season one. It reminded me of why I love this. I'm a little sad too because I mean, you know, you and I haven't started podcasting anything new in a really long time. It's been years, and we've continued on with the things that we've podcast. But I mean, this is a really um, it's a meaningful part of my life, what you and I do with this. I, it's something that I really get a lot of joy out of. And we haven't done anything new. And, you know, I don't not, we don't even have anything on the horizon. And this is coming to an end. And, and they ended it so well. And I just wish that we could have had a more positive outlook on it because they were definitely capable. Just bask in the joy, Michelle. I don't know if they, I I think they got lazy. I counted four parts, Michelle, Noah, Joni, Helen, and Whitney, although they weren't chaptered as numerically and they switched back and forth without identifying the switch a few times. Yeah, they did. But Mm -hmm. I counted four again in this one. Um, So you want to jump into it? Yeah, par- I guess part we should. None. <laughs> part none, <laughs> Noah. Yeah, yeah, that's what I, I actually said. There was actually no parts, just names. But we start with Noah, and he is at Bruce and Margaret's house doing all the wedding stuff, even though he's not even invited to the wedding. I'm super annoyed at this. This whole Whitney thing, they ruined Whitney's character. She was not, she didn't even completely redeem herself in this, did she with you? Yeah, she went through a learning process. In 15 minutes? Well. After her 25 years of life? She did the 180 degree weather vane pivot a couple times, even one more time in this one. Yeah. Come on, Michelle, Um, see the whole moon, not the crescent. (laughs) Okay. Were you able to identify um, in the flash mob all the people? Left to Um, right? Left to right, I tried to name all the people. There were one, uh, two, three, four, eight people. The one I couldn't identify, but then I kind of figured it out at the end. The one on the very far left is the ginger redheaded dude. I think that's Trevor's boyfriend. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh, it was, I don't know his name, but so it was ginger boy, then grandma. Brooklyn. It was Brooklyn. Yeah. Then Sierra's boyfriend, I think, that movie producer guy. Right. Then Colin. Okay. Then Sierra, then Martin, Stacy, and Trevor. Um, and Michelle, do you know anything about the Water Boys, the artists of the song? I don't. They made that. This is another reason I want to do my YouTube comments series in West mm-hmm. Coast Project. But the Water Boys are a pretty cool band. They had over eighty-five members in the band <laughs> over the tenure of the life of the band. <laughs> okay, and this song was lot. recorded. This song was recorded in 1985, so it's an old song, and uh, it's right in our wheelhouse, Michelle, of 80s cool folk rock, classic-y pop music. Right in the right in the um, swing zone of MTV, right when MTV got really popular. Right. But anyway, it's a great choice by Sarah Treem. The music, yes, yes, it was. It was a great choice. It was really cool the dance was cool the way they set it up was cool and everything um yeah that and the now the whole moon the whole of the moon or whatever the name of that song is 
That's not by the original artist, is it? I think it's was sung by somebody else in this. I could be wrong. Well, or, it was sung, I think Noah's recording for the Flash Mob is the Water Boys, but Fiona Apple sings the one at the end when he's on the cliff. Fiona Apple who sings the... Yeah, I saw container. somebody... And I didn't even mean to see it because I've tried not to read anything about this. But I saw somebody saying um, on Twitter that they wondered if we would be able to get that that rendition of it. So I think that would be kind of cool because it was really good. Sure sounded like them. Well, have you ever danced with Rod the Tractor and Kick the Puppy? and? That was dumb. Spin the pizza. It was perfect, though. That's how they do. That That's how they do. That was cheesy. But that's how they... That is a real-life cheese moment. That's how it works. So Those are, I, the, those are the actual descriptions of the dance moves? Oh, I don't know. I don't well, that's, know. That's what I'm saying is stupid. Yeah. Yeah. But Helen comes up, and she wants to see how it's going, and she's loving it, and she's got that beauty smile thing going as she's watching it, just that glow from the inside. And Noah's looking at her while she's enjoying this, and he's googly eyes at her again. And then he has some individual conversations, first with Trevor. Noah's well, yeah, kind of let me jump cool. in with Noah and Helen. So Helen okay. looks more tyranny is freaking beautiful, man. When she's happy and smiling... She's beautiful. She looked beautiful. Her face looked really full and glowing. I, I like this episode mostly because people looked happy. You know, this show has been quite the downer with all the stealing of scripts and movie copyrights <laughs> and babies not being able to be taken care of and threatened to be taken away by protective services and daughters. And dying of pancreatic cancer. And, yeah. yeah. And cheating on people and lying and whatever but this was just happy it was joyous you know and helen's face reflected all of that and she more tyranny just looked great she did she did it was incredible um and noah definitely noticed it and the way he looked at her and stuff it it, it was the same googly eyes we got at his house when they were looking for the birth certificate and she fell asleep beside him but it was in a much better context it was like, okay, we can actually relax into this one in place of it being just weird. Well, that one was weird when he was staring at her while she was asleep. Yeah. This one, you know, Sarah Treem directed this one, so give her credit for writing it. But also this, I, I have more to say about that during a couple scenes, but she directed this one really, really well. And just putting this together the way it was, was... Um, I mean, he he looked at her, and he looks happy because she's happy, and she's happy because just the scene of her kids dancing is happy. I don't know. It was just cut together really well. Yeah, I completely agree. So you're right that Noah has a couple conversations with his kids. Yeah, he has the first conversation with Trevor, and Trevor's telling him that he doesn't hate him, which Noah is kind of taken aback that he just wishes he'd been around more. And this kind of touches Noah and makes him stop what he's doing. And he says, yeah, me too. And that was pretty a pretty intense conversation, even though Trevor just kind of blew it off. So Trevor wasn't quite the terrible character that they've shown him to be recently. He didn't have any marks on his neck. Oh, that's Martin. Just kidding. 
<laughs> that's a, yeah, that's going back. Okay, then with Martin, he's officiating the wedding, right? And he walks up um, talking about what does um, Colin get out of marrying Whitney, that he sees what Whitney gets, but he doesn't see what Colin's going to get. And the way Noah talked about Whitney, what did you think about that? I think it was smart. By the way, Michelle, what do you call it when when Martin, you said officiated? What's the real, what's the word? He's not really the minister. What is he, what was he when an amateur does that at a wedding? An officiant? I'm not sure. My nephew did that at my niece's wedding a couple really? of years ago. It was really cool. It was just like this. He was the priest slash minister slash official or whatever they call it. And he, he read everything. and Yeah, it was cool. Uh, so what was your question? Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, what did I think of Whitney? What did you think about Noah's description of Whitney to Martin? Well, I think he wants to help him try to understand it, that the Soloway women are a tough bunch, but they... No, don't. that was to Colin. That was to Colin. I'm talking about to Martin, why Colin would want to marry Whitney. The stuff he was talking about Whitney to her brother. Well, I thought he said it both to Martin and Colin in different ways. But kind yes, of, yeah. Whitney's... T- Whitney's tough but she's create you know she's bitchy but she's super creative and she's smart and she has i mean he focused in on her positive points and not just the negative well he says she's smart and she's passionate and she feels things very deeply that kind of stuff and he said you don't necessarily because martin said well when i choose to get married i'm going to marry somebody easier and noah said you're you might change your mind because you don't necessarily just want to marry somebody who tells you how wonderful you are. You want to marry somebody who you can't stop talking to because you don't know what they'll say next. Yeah, you don't want a doting wife. You want a creative, vibrant person. I got, I get that. I think that's really good advice. Yeah, but at the same time, that was kind of Noah's downfall, right? Always looking for the the challenge and the 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 hunt. But don't you think he's trying to impart that lesson to Martin? That maybe he learned the hard way. Maybe Martin has to learn the hard way too. But maybe somewhere in his mind, he'll tuck this away and he'll remember it when he's thirty-seven or whatever. Well, and then he goes in to check on Colin. He finds out Colin's parents aren't going to make it because his father, we knew before, is a drunk. That's why Colin doesn't drink and got arrested from the stress of the flight. He never should have done it, he says. And, of course, he put the money into it, and we know they don't have a lot of money. And Noah figures out how to get his mom there, even though I guess his dad's just going to sit in a jail. And he offers to pay for it. And this is where Colin's really touched and says that Noah gets a pretty bad rap in this family. And this is where Noah responds that the Soloway women are pretty tough. But the family always shows up when they're needed. And Colin says it's a big deal where he comes from. So that was a pretty profound thing. You know, I know with my daughters, they are rough on each other they're they're close they're super close they even take like you know little trips together and stuff like that but they're really rough on each other but 
you know, let somebody else come say something to one of them. You know, they really show up for one another, too. And I thought that was pretty good advice and how important that that is to have that. Yeah, that's cool. Um, okay. And then Noah is outside and Helen comes out and tells him how nice this all is, but it's time, which means it's time for him to leave. Which just that just sucks. I was so upset about that. So Noah goes to leave, and there's this huge floral wall being delivered from Sasha to Helen with a note that read, Life is a flower for which love is the honey. Right. So, <laughs> so Michelle, there's a little silliness to this scene because, and you, this wouldn't be a podcast if I didn't pick on some dope, dopey stuff in these scenes, right? Right. So the driver gets in the van to drive away with the note still in the envelope in his grasp and and the invoice unsigned. And he only gives that any attention because Noah walks up and stops him. He would have driven away without the note being handed to anyone because mm-hmm. he, he asks him, are you Helen Soloway? While he's in the cab of the truck ready to drive away. Yeah. And obviously he's not Helen Soloway. Or Helen Butler or whatever. Yeah, Noah's face is like, he goes, uh, no. But, by the way, Dominic West's comedic pause during that no is freaking genius. That was yeah. really funny. It really was. Um, but so a couple things about this note, Michelle. Okay. It's, he, Noah attributes the correct author. It's not Balzac. It's Victor Hugo. That is really true. That line is from Victor Hugo and not Balzac. Um, Victor Hugo is the guy who wrote Les Miserables. Mm-hmm. French, mm-hmm. They're both French writers, but I told you I, I had a little story about, you said something about me writing stuff. And yeah. I, I, I mm-hmm. like to write stuff about people in small captions. So I, I did like a little story about Don Henley in a bar. But I once, once wrote this story about Balzac in a mall, like a shopping mall. Really? And in that story, there's a little poem that I um, I gave. The, I wrote the story for a girl that I liked in, way back when. But I, there's a little poem inside the story, and I gave that poem to a couple different girls. And one girl I gave it to, the first time I saw her, I wrote it on like a bar napkin in a club. And when I saw her later, like a month later, she had it pinned to her refrigerator. So it made, that made me feel good. But that's my little story about Balzac. Oh, that's Balzac really cool. in a mall. That's really cool. You should. I've, I've said forever. You should definitely write more. Well, Le Mis is one of my favorite all-time movies. It's probably at least in the top five. So I'll send you the little poem part. Is like six lines. It's short. You don't need to read the whole story. But um, that's my little story about Balzac. I think you should put it up on the website so everybody can see. I don't know about that. Oh, come on. Put it out there. The the world rewards the brave, Mike. Okay. Yeah. Victor Hugo. <laughs> if, if, if you're going to beat me up with the sayings in this, you're going to get beat back up with the sayings in this. Okay, so Noah signs for it, and then he notices that Bruce is wandering off. Yeah, Bruce and, has his dementia pretty Yeah. Heavy. Bruce thinks that Noah is his baby brother, and Noah is able to convince him to come inside because of this, where Bruce is really combative uh, prior to that. You know, we were always taught that you do not uh, 
you don't play along with people people's delusions in the dementia. You always just very gently and kindly reorient them to reality. So I couldn't help but feel really awkward about what Noah was doing, although under those circumstances, I know he was just trying to, you know, keep him safe. Well, he was also trying to provide cover for himself from Whitney. Well... Yeah, but, I mean, he could have just, yes, yes, he was, which is another thing that irritates me to death. So Noah can't even be there. Whitney can't lay her delicate eyes on her, you know, sperm donor, which is what she's thinking of him as at this point, I suppose, long enough for him to get her grandfather in the house and keep him from wandering away because that's too much for delicate Whitney. So they have to hide. He has to hide with her grandfather who has dementia. She, that character, that's so bad. It was really good writing though. Again, it's Sarah Ching. It's total props for this because Bruce, I think says something like they'll never even know we're here. And blended in with Noah's thinking, hmm, that's right, Whitney, Whitney's never going to even know I set this up and did, and I was here and I was right. trying to support her. I mean, that's, right. that's freaking brilliant, man. That is good writing. It was. It was great writing. The only thing that I have to say negative about the writing in this, in this part, was where was Whitney coming from in a limo? She would get ready there and she would probably spend the night there. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense that Colin's there and everything's going on there, but she ha- comes up in a limo alone. And it's not like she had her bridal party with her and they had been doing something, maybe getting their nails done or whatever. I mean, nothing. It was just her, and she's in a limo. And then she knocks on the door and waits for somebody to open the door. And it was obviously for the scene of Noah getting to look at her and also him getting to be there and plan this stuff and her not be there. But that was just ridiculous well there's your answer that's it's creative yeah hollywood and i thought uh bruce did a great job acting in this too yeah did you see his face i mean he had that uh kind of glowy happy look on his face like the real glowy happy i was really kind of moved by him in this not just in this scene, but in in this whole episode. Yeah, he looked like a happy 12-year-old here, and then later on he looks like a happy 78-year-old or whatever. Yes. Yes, it was very believable. So then we see Noah walking down that road that we've seen many times. I can never see that road, not with Noah walking it or with uh, Joni riding down it or anything without seeing Allison going down that road on her bike. It's, I, it's just seared in my memory. But Noah is going to the memory motel. His key doesn't work, and he has to kick the door in. I know. What's up with that? I'm just not bust sure. bust the door open and pay $500 later? I guess. I guess he was cold. Um, the place was old and dated and a very sad looking place. He wasn't staying at a Ritz Carlton or something. While I bet Whitney you could still find hotels 
they're probably more better described as motels, <laughs> mm-hmm. like that out on Montauk. Oh, on Montauk, really? Probably. Well, he pops a cork on a small bottle of champagne and drinks it and has some Pringles, I guess. They're Pringles no, the Michelle. Why does he take out two bottles of champagne? Is he saving himself a seven-foot walk to the fridge later? He takes, yeah. two, he takes out two bottles and goes to start drinking them. Why, I don't know. Why not leave one in there? I mean, I have a theory later on this, but this seems silly at the time. He takes out both. It's like grabbing two beers and sitting on your bed and starting to drink <laughs> one of them. I didn't even think about it. Um, but he looks sad. He looks like, I don't know, Was it... it it was sad, and it was a sad scene. He's in a, you know, a dinky motel alone, and all the festivities are going on, and he is just sitting there. Yeah, that's the word, alone. He's lonely. Well, then we go to Joni, and I put, you know, I literally, like, put groan underneath there because the Joni, her character... I do not get. They never... I understand why they wanted a Joni. I understand how we needed to take it into the future now. I get that. But why did she have to be such a weirdo? She's got years of ripples of... Oh, damn. Shut Infidelity up. built up in her. We all have, you know, our pasts and our traumas and stuff like that. But you don't have to be like she is. She's in a car and she's driving down the road and she gets the signal that she's running out of gas and she's irritated that she's running out of gas. She's irritated. Right at the lobster roll parking lot, she runs out of gas. Which is the lobster roll again. Well, what a coincidence. I know. And she goes inside and there stands hearing impaired Noah behind the dilapidated counter. Okay. A couple notes here. The first one is, I mentioned in the last podcast that I watched this accidentally before it was released. I had gone to bed and I was trying to catch up on the one we were going to be podcasting in a couple days, episode 10, and I just pushed the newest one thinking that was it, and this one came on, so I watched it. And I was on my phone in bed, didn't have my glasses on. I had no idea that this was Noah because I just couldn't see it well enough. And I didn't figure it out until she was leaving. And then I was, it was so meaningful to me the way I did that, the way I caught it. It wasn't just like, oh, I saw him and knew it was him, which of course says a lot more about my eyesight than it does about anything else. But I just wanted to bring that up. And, um, number two, did you see the prices for food? Did I did. You I actually that? made notes of them. Okay. Yeah, that was insane. Sixty-seven ninety-five for flounder fish and chips. Yeah, twelve fifty for a cup of soup. Yeah, and thirty dollars for a bowl of soup. That's the future. And, yeah, Sarah Train does uh, definitely paint a portrait of a very desolate future. But also, I can't help pointing out here that there was some type of pastry in a glass dome cake dish down on that counter. And it made me really sad because Noah was surprised that he had a customer and that she was the first one this week. 
and that's some, you know, pretty good fish and pastry, right? That no one's eating. Maybe it was one of those fake ones that is plastic. Maybe. My impression of the lobster roll, Michelle, is that it always looks the same no matter what. Season 2, episode 3, season 5, episode 11, it, it's timeless. It always looks the same inside. It It is. Um, it was really cool to see it. It was really cool to see it from the future. I really enjoyed that. And I thought they did a great job of making it look old and stuck in time. You know how you go back to something that you've been to before and it hasn't changed, but of course it's... Um, you know, run down because it hasn't been updated. And I just thought they did a great job of that with this. It, the, the, the walls were kind of uh, worn and everything about it, the windows were, um, you know, not, not dirty, but they get kind of, I don't know, you can't see through them as well and everything. I, I just thought they did great. So Noah brings her coffee, and she tells him that her mom used to work in this restaurant before she was born, and this is when Noah recognizes her and smiles. She orders eggs and asks him where she can get gas for a car, and he says, you can't anymore. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. She says, where can I get gas? And he says, for a car? Like, are, mm-hmm. you, are you some, where are you from, lady? Mm-hmm. And then we go back to Helen. And this scene was, I got mad every time I watched it. I imagine I'll get mad when I watch it again. Helen's button, button, buttoning Whitney's dress overlay. And she's just being abused, right? Did you call her Whitney? Probably. <laughs> buttoning Whitney? <laughs> probably did. Maybe you Sorry. probably didn't. I probably heard it that way. <laughs> I don't know. But this is so freaking annoying. Whitney jerks around because she didn't like that Helen told her that Noah was handling the guest list. And that caused Helen to drop something. And then she gets like cursed at. Why are you even here? I mean, what would you do if someone said something like that? Well, to Michelle, you? you know what I thought when she was fixing up Whitney's dress like that is, did you do this for Orange Julius last week at her wedding? Fix up her dress like that? Absolutely. Yeah, I guess that's probably a rich, a rite of passage huh, for moms and daughters. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like what you do. I actually had to put her shoes on her. I think it's probably in the pictures. I don't know. But, you know, she couldn't do her shoe buckles. And I had to get down and do her shoe buckles before it. And um, we did that. And then they had her show herself in her dress to her bridesmaids. So like a little mini reveal of that. They were in the bathroom, a little, it wasn't just a bathroom or stuffed in a bathroom, but like this area. And, um, while we were in the main area getting her dressed, uh, it was just me and, and the photographer in there. So, yeah. And it's like this little meaningful time. And, um, I don't know. It's like, it's, it's, um, I'm going to get emotional thinking about it because it's an emotional time. You know, you're like, I don't know. Well, I'm going to say, I don't know when I'll say it now, but Colin and Whitney are not in love. I mean, Whitney is not in love with Colin. 
she's marrying him for the car to get all that, but she shouldn't be having a wedding. She shouldn't be marrying this guy. She even says it again in this episode. Yeah, I, I know. I think I love him. I'm pretty sure, but I don't miss him when I'm not. I don't think about him when I'm not with. I mean, don't marry him then. Come right. On. Right. The whole day goes by, and I don't think about him. It's but the it's, do some. You know, it's the machine that gets them together in Montauk. So that's what it's that. I guess we just got to live with that. Well, but they could have not had the wedding. They could have gotten there to have the wedding and then not had the wedding. I mean, it's really, you're, you're right. If she's saying, I don't know if I love him or not. I mean, geez. Well, Helen does say later on in this episode that some people are less in love and stay together than we were, and we were apart. I don't know. It was just, it was just really apparent that Colin and Whitney are not going to be a great couple. I guess. I mean, a lot of people have a lot of ideas about marriage and stuff like that, and I'm sure that that people do like just fall madly in love with somebody and they just stay that way for the whole half century, kind of like Helen was talking about. But I don't think that is the most common thing. I think marriage, like most other things, is a decision. And But hopefully you do love the person that you're deciding to interconnect your life with like this. But I I can't think of another time. Once your child is married and they're gone, I can't think of another time that you're going to help dress them. So it is like this little meaningful time. And here Whitney is just being the monster that she then turned around and called Margaret. And it's like, yeah, you're the same way. Yeah, three generations of hate in this little room. Well, but not with Helen. Not with Helen. And overall, I really like the way this this series ended. Because if you go back and think about it, I mean, Noah was not a good person. Allison was not a good person. And they reminded us many times that Cole was not a good person. And the only person out of this who was consistently a good person was Helen. Well, I think the message they really sent us was that everybody's a gray person and good or bad is like a thing that we go through in life that sometimes we're good and sometimes we're not good, but we're all on a scale that isn't exactly the same every day. Helen cheated on Vic with Sierra. I mean, there were things Helen did that she was pretty mean to Noah about, and Noah went to prison for her, and she sometimes forgot to be grateful for that. She wasn't always good. I think, out of all of them, I think Helen was arguably the, the most decent human being. And even in this situation, she has her mom on one side being a monster to her. She has her daughter on the other side being a monster to her. And she's just trying to get through it and really throwing out these like pearls of wisdom at the same time. You know, I mean, I'm not saying telling Margaret to take some Xanax and go drink was, you know, a pearl of wisdom, but telling them that this 
it doesn't matter. This is nothing but a very expensive party. I actually use those same words to my daughter. You know, so it doesn't matter. This is just an expensive day, and it means nothing in the overall. Yeah, uh, that's another prop to Sarah Treem because you think a woman writer. Sorry if my misogyny bleeds through here, but you you might think a woman writer would say, "Have Helen jump on Margaret like." Please, Mom, this is her most important day of her life. This is her wedding day. You cannot be so negative. But no, she gives the wisdom, like you just said. It's just, it has no bearing on the balance of the rest of your life. It's just another day. It's really good writing. It's, 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 I don't know. It's a depth that Sarah Treem reaches that you might expect more to come from a male writer who says, What's a big freaking deal about a wedding? It's just another day. You know, it is just another expensive party. It doesn't matter in the scheme of things. No, it, I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't have any effect on your marriage. It's not like if you have a great wedding, you're going to have a great marriage. It has nothing to do with anything. It's just a party that you set up, and it's very expensive. And um, anyway, yeah. Do you think Sarah Tream woke up from a coma or something between episode 10 and 11? <laughs> 10 and 11? What about season 2? And season five, episode 11. Yeah, somewhere around there. And I literally thought it was horrifyingly funny that Margaret was talking about the dog dying. And Helen's like, you don't have a dog. She said, no, but there's a dog that's wandered on the premises. And for some reason, I know, I know, I'm horrible, but for some reason it was just like, what? That was just the oddest thing to throw in there. Yeah, we never saw that dog, did we? No. And um, so we're leaving the room, and Margaret holds her arm out for Helen to precede her through the door and then kisses her on the cheek. What was that? That's the spectrum I think I'm talking about. She's a witch, man, but she's got some beautiful soul inside of her, too. She's the mom of Helen, and she probably remembers Helen's day like Whitney's day was, Helen's day was, and it's a fond memory for her. She's a, she's a human, you know? She's got a spectrum of things inside her. Yeah, but that's really uh, quite the spectrum, isn't it? Well, but I the- think you and I have it. I think all humans have it. I think it's universal. Another good prop to Sarah Treem. It's not just, oh, mom, don't be a bitch. It's her day. Be, you know, she sees the wholeness of everybody. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these back and forth with these characters, I still don't love that. But that was kind of an interesting little thing. Only because we didn't see a huge turnaround in Margaret. We only saw that one little moment of it. And I can see that. That rings true to me in place of be a crazy bitch to you and then turn around and be, you know, teary eyed. Well, she's offering up you. her home for this wedding. That's not something in. in- consequential I don't know I, I think I think it's I I called Sarah Cheem lacking irony I think she's I think she's a very smart writer and she does use irony sometimes but it's just muddled and mixed up with times that she drops the ball so we think all of it's stupid 
I think she's very smart, actually. I think she uses ironic text and correspondence between people and dialogue in a very intelligent way sometimes, and this may have been one of those times. She could be a real bitch, but she's also the mom of Helen, and she has that fond memory of Helen's day. Well, I think you cut Helen, uh, Helen, Sarah Trame a lot of slack. I think irony is only irony if people know it's irony. Otherwise, it's just stupid. And I know she's a good writer, and I know she's a good director because I'm, I watched it an hour and a half of it three times. But that does not mean that she gets a pass for everything else, like she cares what I think. But truly... Well, can you be, can you be, as an artist, can you be Picasso and a 12-year-old slop hand painting? I mean, does the, does the sloppy, crappy, ugly painting ruin Picasso? No. No, not at all. This was, this was good. Season one was good. And, and I mean, and I'll call it out for what it is. I just know that when, Mike... If people are doing Picassos or Mona Lisas and then they draw you a stick figure, you don't have to say, well, you know, look at the stick figure and say, well, they're good. You know, you could say the Picasso's good and the Mona Lisa's good, you know, Starry Night's good, but the stick figure, not so much. It's so, okay, I think. So Sarah Chim had a bad seven years. Okay. Michelle, I'm a Cubs fan. They had to go from 1908 to... 2016 to win a world championship. Well, I'm a Tennessee Vols fan, so. Yeah, when know. did they win the World Series? <laughs> they haven't done that, but um, Tennessee's had a rough uh, few years, and so you know, particularly this year started out really bad, and we'd appreciate if people would respect our privacy during this very difficult season. Um, but anyway, the procession starts, and Helen and Whitney hold hands as Helen walks her down the aisle. And I thought that was kind of cute. And then we see Martin officiating, and Bruce Well, Whitney is- shows her spectrum, positive bright side, too. She says, I just want you to be happy, Mom. Oh, kiss my... That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. You... you- Say that you only wanted her there for optics when Michelle, you have her Michelle, alone. did you just do a flow from Alice impression? <laughs> yeah, kiss my grits. That's what I was going to say. That's ridiculous. And then you get down there in front of everybody. That was nothing but optics, Mike. That's right. just optics. That's what she wanted her there for. If somebody said that to me, I would... Uh, I would give them some optics. Don't be a negative Nelly. I guess. But Bruce is literally tied to the chair. And that was funny. What'd you think of that? That was stupid. Can't tie an adult to a chair. I thought they did a pretty good job. Well, they did a good job of tying him, but you can't do that. <laughs> well, what do you do? I don't know. There it was another little scene we missed where Helen's with Sierra and her boyfriend and he talks about his knowledge of the lobster roll and he, he his great ambition because he visited when he was younger because he wanted to be a waiter there because all the girls were so cute, all the waitresses. Oh, that, I that know. Was, yeah, they were also all tan. pretty smart. Yeah, it was. It was. They were all so tan and attractive. And of course, 
that's like a smack in the face to Helen, right? Particularly after everything she said to Noah in the last episode, right before the snake bite. Well, it's either a slap in the face or it's a reminder that all guys kind of think of women sometimes is like, wow, beautiful women. They have an attraction that they haven't really earned just because they're attractive. You know, they have a pull for men. Like it's, it's like an artificial pull. Cause you know, a cute waitress, you don't know anything about her. You don't know if she's smart, if she likes what you like, she just looks good. And men like get attracted to that. It's kind of a, it's kind of an observation by Sarah Treem to have this odd, you know, D-level actor in this. We don't even know this guy. For him to say it, I think it's kind of smart by her to put that in there. Oh, I thought it was smart, but I certainly took it differently. I took it as a um, kind of like what you're saying in that Helen would know that Noah wasn't the only one whose head was turned by the waitresses there. But at the same time, I mean, that's a painful memory. Okay. Okay. I mean, that's how, what I thought, but then it's time for the flash mob and Whitney absolutely loved it. And did you see Bruce participating a little over on the side? Yeah. Bruce pulls a Houdini somehow gets out of his chair and does a couple steps. Well, they had to let him up, you know, I mean, you can only, you know, you can't just, Keep somebody tied for a long time. So all these little happy things, Michelle, while they easily, so easily could have slipped into sappiness, really work. I think they really work. They are truly happy little vignettes inside the scene that work. I mean, it feels good to watch it. It does. And I think I I think I saw Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the crowd, too. Was she? I think so. No, I'm just saying somebody looked. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Um, She's from New York. So. It was also kind of cheesy, too. They had like the, what was it, the blow-up geese in the pool and stuff. I mean, just like cheesy stuff, but it's so real. I mean, that kind of stuff is so real. Yeah, Noah would have been a good wedding planner. Yeah. But Whitney picks up on the dance pretty quick. Did you notice that? Well, of course, if she somehow Colin knew that was her song and told Noah, I'm sure that was her song. It wasn't something Noah just pulled out of the air. Well, I don't know, maybe. That was the song that they were singing, wasn't it? Yeah, The Hole of the Moon. Yeah. Yeah, they were singing that in the car on the way to um, Margaret and Bruce's house when her and Noah were going there to plan the wedding. Well, there you go. That's how Noah got it. Yeah. yeah, that's good. So Helen is trying to upload the video to Noah, but it's not delivering and it's stressing her out. And Ma- Martin comes up and asks her to dance, a mother-son dance. And because it's, you know, time for the kids to dance with the parents. But Helen notices that Whitney has no one to dance with since she's such a terrible person and doesn't want Noah there. So she sends Martin to dance with Whitney and Helen just decides to leave. She leaves before she leaves. Yeah. She stands and listens to the musician and remembers from the song parts of her life. Again, Michelle, this is really why I want to do that YouTube project because music prompts everything. 
It does, um, yeah. I mean, watch Guardians of the Galaxy. That is essentially my concept in feature film length. Guardians of the Galaxy is an assembly of old songs that bring back really cool, fun memories, and they have a little bit of a plot around it. And that's what Helen's doing here. She's listening to this guy's words and thinking back on her life. But yeah, you're right. Then she walks over to, to Noah. Well, and she also sees um, Colin's mom there, too. So we had that and that the length she went to to make it there for her son and the fact that Noah's not there. I think she's thinking about all that kind of stuff. But she goes to the hotel and she almost backs out when she gets there. She turns around and then she decides to go through with it, which have you ever done that in real life? Well, yeah, of course. I guess she knows I mean, Noah's door by the kick marks, because how would she know what room he's in? She didn't know. She was walking. I think she was going to walk to the office, and she walked past the window and saw him, because that window, as we'll see later, remains open the whole time. It's all Pringles and champagne in that room, Michelle. It's exactly what I said. <laughs> Pringles and champagne, they share. So, Michelle, uh, my theory, my crackpot aluminum hat theory, is was Noah getting the second bottle out earlier a way for him to prime fate to make this happen in his favor? That I'll get up two bottles as if somebody was going to join me in this toast, and then fate got aligned with that and brought Helen over to him. That's kind of neat. I don't know. That's neat. That's neat. He asked her why she's there, and she says that she's there to show him the video, which he loves. He's so excited to see that. And as Helen was filming it, she also filmed Whitney's face. So he, so Noah got to experience that, too. And as Noah's watching that, she's the googly-eyed one watching him watch that right so it's more happy that. happy that works him watching the video and her watching him watch the video just like he watched her watch the real practice so it's just good it's just written and shown really well it really good they talk about their own wedding and helen says she was never she's never present anywhere she's too high strung she says Noah has made one decision after another, and she never makes any decision. This is another man. This is a big, big life thing. She never makes any decisions. She just lets stuff happen to her, and then she's sad and mad about it and complains. She, yeah, she like, doesn't even remember their wedding. She was too worried about what might go wrong. Right, She right. doesn't remember, probably meaning she doesn't remember the good parts of the wedding no no she doesn't you know remember anything she's she's so focused on what's next how do i prevent a disaster from happening next how is this going to look to people and that whole thing that that she's not present and that's a great that's a great thing i think for well all of us but particularly young people to think about in this cell phone always have a screen against your face time to just sometimes stop and just be present in that moment because that's just great advice. Yeah, she really sheds her thoughts. It's good exposition. Again, Sarah Treen, man, I don't think I've said anything bad about her yet, but that's really good writing. It's exposition that she sheds all these thoughts and 
codependency is a part of life. If you stay with somebody a long time, you have to somewhat be dependent on them. It's not just a negative word. It's a part of that relationship. That was really interesting. Yes, it was. And this whole little tirade that Helen did, my husband, Mike, liked it so much that he actually, like, watched it twice. He thought it was so good. Helen starts griping now. She says, nobody does what's good for them. And if they do, they don't enjoy it. I mean, it was so funny. And when a couple stays married for 50 years, people don't think there's some element of codependency to that. And Noah <laughs> says she needs more salt and gives her some more Pringles. Yeah, that little can of Pringles, because that's not a real can of Pringles. That's like a vending machine can of Pringles. A dude alone in a hotel drinking champagne, that would have been gone in about four minutes. He wouldn't have any left over to give to Helen after <laughs> sitting by himself. Maybe Noah watches his salt intake, Mike. Maybe he has a sodium problem. We don't know. Yeah, he's very health conscious. They discuss how if this affair that he had had happened 50 to 60 years ago, she would have been given credit for standing by him instead of being looked at as the problem. And that was a pretty interesting, especially since we're, this thing spans a lot of time. I thought that was really an interesting observation on that. And then she says if they both die and he never finds out that she still loves him, does she win a prize or something? Yeah, it slips out. Yeah, and it takes both of them by surprise, and he gets teary-eyed, and he looks happy. And I was so moved by his reaction to that. And then he goes into, it's a familiar pattern between them, that he gets exiled and she rescues him. And we know how that ends. And he says, even if we love each other, it doesn't mean we're good for each other. And he says certain couples have hurt each other less than we have. And she counters with, well, certain couples have loved each other less than we have, too. That was just some pretty amazing stuff. I mean, it's stuff that you really have to stop and think about. It just gets, like, lost in the words, in, in, in the words that are coming next, because that is, like, worthy of some really deep thought. And then she goes on to say that when she's feeling really sad or happy, she thinks that they're not going to be here for long on, on the earth. And she forgets to remember that all of this happened for the best. I mean, just perfect stuff. Right. Well, she says, what's the end game? We just get old and die. And this question to me was the best one of all of them, Michelle, because this is the question that eludes all of us. The answer eludes all of us. It puts us all on the same team. Now, we don't really know what happens at the end. So we all have the same consideration slash problems slash thoughts slash whatever, you know, concern. What happens at the end? We all have to wonder what goes, where do we go at the end? And it puts us all on the same team. We all have the same common enemy, right, or common concern. Um, Some people, I guess, are super religious and know, quote, unquote, where they're going to go. But I think people wonder, even if they're super religious, what happens after you die? Well, I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. I think you can have a belief and, you know, and, and know what you know, but still wonder about it. 
and what it's going to be like. I don't think that's mutually exclusive. But yeah, Noah brings up that that really what they're all. Um, well, no, he doesn't do that here. It's later with Joni where he brings up that about they're all just really what what you really are trying to run from is death. It's a good reason to rally together, and nobody is out of that club. Nobody is not in that club. <laughs> I mean, God damn, Sarah Treem again. It's it puts us all together in concert with. We all have to wor- wonder about this. You know, it's the perfect entree to their slow dance, and they get together. Well, and Noah asks her to dance with him. I can't even say it. I'm going to cry. Swear on their daughter's wedding day. And the, I, I made a note. I said, even the third freaking time watching this, I cried. The third time, I still cried. Well, Michelle, I've cried through a lot of our podcasts. <laughs> and then he makes a cute little comment about she used to be able to know what he was thinking by looking at him. And does she know what he's thinking? And she says, I think you want to kiss me. but And then he kisses her. And, and it's cheesy and sweet and everything it's everything yeah it's a perfect romantic moment it's not just super lust and passion immediately it's it's very emotional and very intense and Noah actually lets the pressure off a little bit like hey tell me about the wedding tell me what I missed you know so she has something to describe to him it's not so red hot intense for that moment but it leads to them connecting, and it's just it's just really good. And then he says, after they kiss, he said, see, you still got it. And he's got that grin. You know, and I told you, I've never found Noah attractive. Remember, I mean, I was, like, vehemently not finding Noah attractive, and I was, like, insulted that you would think I would find a Noah. And I did. I did. All right, the prosecution rests. Okay. But he's right. Helen does still have it. Helen has it. That should have been like the title of this show, this episode. Michelle, you're okay. no Sarah Treem. I'm not. Make a you're, the title. You're, Jesus. You're, okay, then we go back to Joni, and she's back at the lobster roll, or still at the lobster roll. And Noah goes in to talk to her, and she's reading a book called Montauk. It's all I could tell at that point. And she says she's loosely connected to the author. She says she has a big decision to make, and she'd like to be alone because Noah's kind of chit-chatting with her. And Noah says, be brave. The universe rewards courage. And, you know, I guess mouthiness is passed down from generation to generation, right? Because, I mean, how ugly is she? She is so ugly to him. I didn't ask for your advice. I mean, who would say that to somebody? Who would say that? Well, Michelle, we've already been through this. She's suffering from waves of infidelity. It's been, they're almost over her head. She's hard. It's hard for her to breathe. She's on her tiptoes in the bottom of the pool. Okay. Well, Joni says she just found out that her mom's boyfriend murdered her, so she doesn't want his effing advice. And, I mean, she's just horrible. She takes off her bracelet, which is evidently how we're all going to pay for stuff in the future. That thing comes off awfully easy for something that you can't function without, by the way. She didn't have any trouble getting it off. 
charge whatever you want for the eggs. I'm out of here. So she goes home and loads a shotgun and EJ comes in and Joni pulls the gun on him. She pulls the gun on EJ knowing it's him. And she's like, how'd you find me? You know, my own husband doesn't know where I am. And EJ is like, what? And she's like, he says, you don't seem like the type that would lie. And she says, haven't you figured me out yet? I'm a disaster. Cause I mean, we've all figured her out. And he asked about how it went with Ben and she tells him about how he tricked her into signing that stuff and then had her own tape saying things out of context and, um, and that the police believed him. But EJ talks her into not killing Ben and run away with him. And he doesn't care that she's married because she doesn't care that she's married. His job is flying him to Vienna and he wants her to come with him. And then they can just keep going. Yeah, EJ might be the dumbest part of season five. There, I don't really see any reason why we need to see any of EJ. Yeah, I was going to ask, what is the point of that? Well, they're both children of affairs. They're both connected through the Helen whatever. However, I can't even do the math on how they're connected. They try to tell us. EJ, EJ rips through it in about a five-second sentence that's pretty funny. But, I mean, he gives her good advice. You don't owe your life to anyone, and they play off of each other, but they were never going to end up together. So their romance is kind of silly. He could have been a, uh, I don't know what, a peer of same age person that just crosses her path. But to have him in the cemetery while she's there and all that cheesy, you know, correlated, like, coincidence stuff was just kind of silly. Yeah, but still, now still, and you probably still won't say anything negative about Sarah Trim and this, but they still had to throw this in there. EJ is giving her the speech about being about how she's honest and how he's sick of trying to fix his parents' mistakes. We didn't mess up the world. They did. I mean, you got to throw that kind of stuff in there. That was like, it was like, Sarah, Sarah, Sarah. You know, well, I mean, that's are, definitely her thought about climate change and all that stuff. Well, I don't know who. Okay. The, the deficit. You know, it's all, it's all. Okay. All right. Well, let's just say that because I thought about this because it was such a little like. Have you ever had a tag in the back of a shirt that just annoyed you and you really like the shirt and there's no way to get the tag out of it because you'll ruin the material of the shirt? So you either have to wear this great shirt with this annoying little teeny tiny tag in the collar, or you have to get rid of the whole thing. It's a really annoying situation to be in. And that's what this is to me, this episode. Michelle, this I, think, the, I think you just need some cheering up. Or some Pringles. I need some salt. <laughs> I, I get it. She's she's dopey about her political and social beliefs, but I mean. Okay, but let's just say this really quickly. Okay, she's talking about herself. This is the year twenty fifty something. She's the parent. She's the previous generation. So she made fun of herself. She didn't even have enough well, sense. Well, it's true. To every every generation before. The, I know, the current people are the sum of all the generations before. 
right? But we also have computers and we have air conditioning and we have medicine and we have <laughs> and cars. Right. Yeah. <laughs> go to rockets to the moon. I mean, come on, man. Well, she goes, okay, I'll go with you. And she puts the gun in the umbrella stand and just like, okay. Umbrella stand's a good place for a rifle. It holds it perfectly. Does it? Okay. And you were right. You were right. This is Eddie. This is baby Eddie. You were right. He admits it. Well, come on, man. That was good, though. I mean, it. you know, he <laughs> explains how they're connected, like you said. And she is so mad. She is Whitney. I'm going to go to Vienna with you this moment. And 30 seconds later, stop the car. Stop the car. All these people threatening to jump out of a moving car. I well, mean, she asked him to stop it. I guess yeah. Eddie does channel a few things to Joni that she might have trouble figuring out without Eddie. Like he channels that Noah bought the lobster roll and there is a little bit of a reason for him. But it's, it's coincidence. It's kind of overwhelming. Well, she goes into, she can't believe that Helen and Sierra were able to be friends. And he says that forgiveness is possible. And then she does the movie clip. You know, you'll hate me. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but someday and for the rest of our lives. What was the movie? Casablanca. That was the movie, Allison's favorite movie? Evidently, yeah. How did you know it's Casablanca? I had to look it up from that, from that clip, that little. Okay. And this is where he lets slip that Noah owns the lobster roll now and then offers her a ride, but she just wants to walk. And, okay, so, you know, she's like, this is never going to work and all this kind of stuff. So she essentially ends this here with him. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, Jessica, watches this show, too, and she watched it, and then she read something from, that Sarah Treem had written, and I asked her not to send it to me because I don't like to read anything before I podcast, but she told me before I said, no, please don't send me that, so I've got to say it now, that Sarah Tre- that, that whole scene was about Joni breaking the generational curse the mistakes that Allison had made by going off with Noah and running away and right. Joni just broke that by not running away with right. EJ that's well, that's, what the, that was that's the other thing that Eddie adds to the story I guess now that we talk through it it comes cl- more clear but Eddie is the epigeneticist that that somehow presents that the turmoil goes through generations and gets set in our genes and he makes an analogy some rats or something they smell things and they're afraid of it but then also resilience comes through and this is this is the resilience that Joni maybe the reason for Joni's character in the future is the resilience is overcome the negative turmoil I think it would have been great to have a Joni of the future but it just doesn't have to be this weird Joni she doesn't have to be, I mean, Eddie's kind of weird too, EJ, but he's not like crazy like Joni is, right? I mean, she's horrible and she doesn't have to be like that. I do not understand that. I don't understand why they had to make her that way. We have Charlie Brooker to blame for that, Michelle. Sarah Cheem probably watched Black Mirror and got, oh, this is going to be so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So she walks back into the lobster roll and says, hello, Noah. 
They sit and talk, and Noah tells her that Cole always thought that Ben killed her mother. And Joni says that he's always told her the opposite, that Allison left and that she was crazy and they were better off without her, and he tried to save her, but he couldn't. What do you think about the way Cole depicted, and Louisa, depicted Allison to Joni? Yeah, Cole gets tarnished a lot in this one here. Maybe Sarah Treem's mad that what's-his-name left the show. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe, because Cole was definitely not the good guy that we, you know, kind of played into there for a while. Um. Noah says that Cole was carrying a tremendous amount of pain, but Noah's also saying, oh, Joni, Joni, you know, and that kind of thing. He's like telling her the truth. He says he respected Cole. And they discuss how when he moved back to Montauk after Whitney's wedding, that she and Cole were just moving away. And Noah also says that, and this is another one of those, I mean, we could do a whole podcast on it, that Tom has a habit of making big thing, big things seem small somehow. Yep, that's true. It is true. And it's, and it's not just true. It's like, I'm, I always kind of joke to the girls, like if I'm, telling them something, you know, I mean, kids halfway listen to you, right? And so if it's something that I feel like is super important, I'll say, hey, I'm trying to hand you a pearl. You should listen to this, you know, I'm giving you a pearl. So that's a pearl that really is. And there, it's just full of pearls. This whole episode is. So then he asks about her life and he's just like, he's so peaceful, He's got this peaceful look on his face and everything. And she tells him about her kids and says she can only love them when she's away from them. And when she's away, she misses them terribly. But when she's with them, she can't even hold them. And she doesn't understand why. And honestly, I don't understand why either. I don't feel like they necessarily explained that very well. Do you? Um, that's kind of the theme of the whole thing, though, is that you got to break the bad cycle of things to make any t- change is hard and you got to go through pain to change always kind of means pain, but it usually means good things past the pain. Well, yeah, but Allison didn't have trouble holding Joni. Don't you remember? I mean, love, 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 loved her, hugged her, loved her, uh, wouldn't let her go into monkey bars without standing underneath her and going, Joni, 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 Joni. I mean, she loved her, so I don't understand where Joni got this. But then Noah tells her about his friend, the epigeneticist, and goes into the generational trauma, the study of rats that were shocked every time they smelled cherry blossoms, and these rats' babies were afraid every time they smelled cherry blossoms. And then Joni, of course, she doesn't tell him. She knows EJ. She doesn't tell... Well, yeah, I'm not going to say that. Um... But she says that there's also a theory that the children can inherit resilience. And Noah says, oh, well, maybe you got Allison's resilience. And she corrects him. You mean Cole's. And Noah says, no, Allison was the resilient one because she wasn't afraid to change. And Joni had been told evidently and thought that Allison just dumped her off with Cole and Louisa when she was four 
But Noah tells her that she only did that to go get some help, and then she came back and fought for her in court. And I'm just like, Cole or Louisa never told her that? Well, isn't that your answer to your question a second ago, that she, Allison had to go through that change? She didn't want to leave Joni behind. She had to go off and do that, whatever she did for those six months or whatever and fix herself and then help fix other people. That, in a weird, indirect way, was to the benefit of Joni. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, it was. Remember, she was having those visions of Joni, like, dead. And it was really scaring her because Joni was sick. And that's when she took her in the middle of the night and dropped her off with Cole and Louisa because she left that night to go get some help. She couldn't stay there with her having those visions of her. And I, I mean, that's she the was mes- That's the overall message, though, is that sometimes you have to go through change that you don't want to go through that makes your life end up being better. It's painful and difficult. Yeah, but we see this, but then we also see that, like what Helen said, you know, is it really better? You know, sometimes she forgets to know it's better. Even though she's stronger and stuff, if she's spending her life without the person she loves, even though she's stronger, is it really better? And don't to what don't you think Helen processed that, though? She went, she tried to do it. She never really loved Vic, I don't think. She's like Colin and Whitney with Vic. She never really loved him. He was just like the perfect replacement slot guy. Slot this guy in next slot Sasha in I mean she didn't love those guys well she even said that when Vic was dying remember she sat outside the hospital and talked to Noah and she says I don't know if I love him how do, how do you know right well that's my point she these she processed at the time she thought that was the best thing she should do she processed all this at the end and she came to a realization that Hey, I've found this out through this this information going through my head gave me this answer. It's a process. It's not just he should have known this all along. Well, in here, when he's talking about Allison's change, he says, you know, Allison's one of the few people I've known that was actually able to change. She took this trauma and she made it into something good. She learned to help people who had similar trauma, and most people can't do that. Right. Allison would have rather stayed home every day and hugged Joni and just been a mom, but she went away and did this thing to help make the world around her better, including Joni. Yeah, but we're not really remembering Allison completely accurately because she was very flighty even after that. Remember, she was going to go. She had just gotten Joni back uh, in court from Cole and Allison gotten, or Cole and Louisa gotten partial custody, 50-50 custody back. And then suddenly she wants to, like, move and go to school. And I know, it, but Michelle, that's I think the point. She's not a she's not an element. She's a soup. She's a thing, a pot full of many things. She was she cheated on Cole. You know, she did a lot of weird bad things, and she and she cheated on Noah. She, she let Noah raise Joni, but right. she was also a mom that missed her drowned son and loved her new Joni. And I mean, she's a she's a gray. She's full of all these things. But Noah is definitely remembering the good in her. And Joni brings up, yeah, but what good did all this change do her? You know, she just, you know, she was still dating married men, 
And so Cole wouldn't even tell her that she did, that Allison didn't know. He knew Allison didn't know Ben was married. Remember? But now Joni has this. Le- now Joni can look at Allison's life with this new knowledge, and this is what good it did for Allison. It helped her daughter learn to. I mean, her daughter now has made her family whole again because of all these things that Allison's life gave gave Joni as new information that she used to become, you know, more processed, more refined, more perfect of a person. So. I guess Ben just gets away with it, right? Who cares, I guess. I kind of wanted to see some comeuppance for Ben. You wanted to see that shotgun blast? No, I didn't want to see anybody kill anybody, but, I mean, I certainly wanted something. I mean, Well, he lives his life as a schmo and a guilty, guilt-ridden conscience, and who, I mean, who cares about that? I don't trust his guilt-ridden conscience. Joni busted out a seafood purgatory. That's the only good thing. That's the main thing. She did. She says it's too late for her to go home. And Noah asks why. And she goes, well, you tell me since you seem to know everything, smarty pants. And Noah says, because it's hard, maybe. It's Michelle, hard you know to... what I love about you is no matter how far ahead we get of your notes, you're a bulldog with your notes. You will not jump ahead in your notes. You have to grind <laughs> no. your way through those words. Yes, I do. <laughs> well, I mean, it's important. I don't make notes about something that's not, like, important. Because this is, a, this is another pearl here, Mike. I'm giving you a pearl. Noah says it's hard. It's hard to stay with someone. It's so easy to go find someone new and reinvent yourself in someone else's eyes. And this is where he says, but you're really only running from death. And when that occurs to you, you'll realize that you want someone that really knows every inch of you. And then he says, if trauma and pain can echo through generations, then so can love. If abandonment can then so can presence. And then he says, you may not be able to save the earth, but you can be there with your children, no matter what happens. Yeah, that registers with Joni. That's pretty profound. Yeah. By the way, her job, we skipped over this. Her job is to save the world from drowning. That's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Whitney, right? Whitney, she's dancing with Martin, watching Colin dance with his mom, and she's whispering to Martin, don't tell anybody, but I miss Dad. And Martin says he's here in Montauk to do the wedding, and this just makes Whitney crazy. She gathers all the siblings at the table and scolds them for not telling her. And, you know, Stacy's drinking champagne and definitely giving her opinion to Whitney. Whitney says... He's somewhere by himself while we're all just here enjoying this party. And it's awful that none of you told me. And then Colin pops in and goes, well, Whit, you know. And so he was in on it, too. And she freaks out about that. And she goes, he just has all of y'all fooled. And she gets up to do, you know, be dramatic. And Colin says, well, he brought my mother here. And yeah, it takes one little bit of knowledge, piece of information for her to pivot the 180 degrees again. Oh, I know. Not that he planned the wedding or not that he's in town, but he's not there. He still cares about her. It's that he bought the ticket for the plane is what made her pivot. Right. Not that he got all these people together and taught them how to do the flash mob. None of that. But the fact that he got Colin's mother there. 
So Bruce comes up and asks her to dance. And while they're dancing, it's just pearls. You know, the whole thing is pearls. They're talking about forgiveness and love. And something he said that was so profound. He says, you have plenty of opportunities to be angry in your life. But you'll have much, many less opportunities to love people. And young people think these opportunities are just going to keep coming, but they don't. Yep, they run out. That is incredible. It's incredible. And then so she stands there for a minute and she thinks about it and she asks him to do her a favor. And then she and Colin and all the siblings are standing by the pool watching for or waiting for Bruce. And he comes up, winks at her, and then dramatically falls in the pool. What do you think about that? Yeah, Michelle, I was going to ask you, did these next couple scenes bring up uh, any re- recall for you, any other movies that you liked in your life? Like for this one, for me, it was It's a Wonderful Life when they're dancing in the gym and the pool, op- the gym floor opens and they all fall into the pool. Because, <laughs> like, not just one person jumps in to save Bruce, like, they all start jumping in. Well, Margaret was the first one. Like, Margaret's going to be able to do something. But, yeah, yeah, that that's pretty good. No, I don't think I thought about that. But And it was over the top, and it was silly, and he could have done something else and everything. And it was comical. It was like a Hallmark you know, made for TV movie at this point. Well, they all could have walked in different directions and left for 20 minutes and not caused an uproar too. They didn't need a big, a big event to get everybody's attention for them to leave the wedding. No, no, it was just, it was silly, but it was cutesy. And so they got a complete pass with all that. Um, the gag will grab the top of the cake and coats and boots and forks and take off running for the memory motel. So I was trying to remember what movie that was, and I thought it was maybe The Breakfast Club. Don't they go running through the hallways and stuff? Or maybe like A Hard hard Day's Night when all the girls are chasing the Beatles around. But I thought it was kind of referencing a movie where people run away from a crowd chasing them. I don't know. I don't know. But it was good. It was really, it was uplifting. And they're running toward something, you know, toward, they're running toward goodness toward toward right and I, I liked all that yeah they're a team they're a united team on a common mission they're a family they're a family doing something important and they're working together to accomplish yes well they get there and Whitney passes by the open window the open curtain and sees um, Helen in there with Noah and they're having sex and she makes everybody backs up, back up and she's like, oh my gosh, mom's in there. And they're like, so? And she's like, gives them a look and they're like, oh, okay. This scene was also accompanied by, it was greatly assisted by whatever music was in. I, I didn't catch the song, but it was this music when they were running over to the hotel was really good. It was. It was good. And it was good. And then they're sitting outside on that bench and the music's playing and they're like eating this. First of all, do you know how expensive a wedding cake is? I, I don't care. It's just it's just interesting to see their family crammed on that tiny little bench. Stacy's drinking champagne. I mean, they're doing stuff that makes them all one. They're a unit. That was that was the cool point to me. It was really, it was, it was really cool. It that was cake's cool. going to get chopped up anyway, and who cares? They're doing it in an important 
in an important way, right? It was bonding them together. Well, that's kind of what I was saying. Even though they didn't just like, you know, grab something, they grabbed this thing that was, um, I mean, it's expensive and they ruined it to do something better with it. Well, it would have gotten chopped up in a half hour anyway to eat, right? Yeah, but they did it. They did something better with it. That's all I was going to say. They were bringing Noah his piece piece of the wedding. And then I loved the pan of this. And I rarely, you know, in episode one or season one, they did a lot of this like overhead shots of, I think I mentioned it already, Alice on her bike and stuff like that. It's really neat. And they did this. It's different. But they didn't just pan across town with this. They had the camera on all the youth I mean, on all these young people and the smiles and 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 the love and the family, and then they pan across time as they pan across the town, the area, and they go back to Joni, and I just really like that. Yeah, and the Sarah Dream directing of this again is really cut and spliced really well. She the edits are just really interesting and fun to watch. And even as they're panning away, you can still see like the little tiny open window and you can see Noah and Helen in there with the kids just kind of waiting. And it's just, it was great. But we see Joni on the train and she's going home. And then we go back to Noah and he's sitting against a tombstone. He's flexing his arthritic hand, and we see the Montauk book. And we see that it was written by Stacy Soloway. And he's reading aloud to someone, we don't know who at this point, and he's describing Stacy's father, which of course is himself, as tall, patient, and lazy, and Helen, Stacy's mother, as small, impatient, and I forget the other word they used. Well, Stacy's describing him. He's just reading it. He's not. Right. Yeah. Right. And then we flash back to them in bed that night in the cheesy hotel having sex. And they're discussing that this means nothing, even during the act. And then he asks her if she wants to try again. And she says, I do. Then we go back to the tombstone. He's looking a little tired and sad, and he gets up, promising to come back tomorrow, and we see that it's Helen's tombstone and that she died in 2051, and Bruce died in 2024, and then we see Margaret died the same year Helen did. Yeah, what year do you think they're in with the wedding, Michelle? 50 what? Three, 54? Okay. Or not the wedding, the uh, the Noah. Oh, right, right. Now, now. I'm guessing because it's the same time as Joni being there and didn't Cole die in 53? Isn't that what we said? Yeah, but, I mean, we can't go by those gravestones. No, I'm just curious how soon after... How soon after Helen died does Noah... I guess he goes every day after she dies to her gravestone. That's how he made it seem. You know, I'll be back tomorrow. And he gets up and walks away with a cane, glancing back over his shoulder. 
We go back to Joni, and she's going back home. The kids run to her, loving her, and she hugs them tight, apologizes to Paul, and he forgives her and loves her, and they all hug. So she's broken the cycle. Then we go back to Noah, and my favorite part, I'm going to cry, swear I'm going to cry. I cannot even talk about this without crying. I loved that. Did you love that as much as I did? Only that I don't, I, the only part I didn't like is Fiona Apple singing it. I, I would have rather heard the original song, but it was good. I mean, it was really good. I just thought it was great. Noah's walking, he walks to the edge of like the cliff, the ocean, and he starts doing that. I swear I'm for Clem. He starts doing that that flash mob dance. Yep, the hole of the moon. Yep. I put. I, w- <clears throat> I was sobbing like a baby, and I fell in love with Noah. So Michelle, I had a moment. question, a final question, at the end of this whole thing for us, because you said, okay. um, "How dare Whitney." impart all this knowledge to her parents when she's just a 26 year old whatever however old she is but you know what made me think after watching this this um all this great music and so i'm thinking about the music more than anything but um all this great music that like the water boys they wrote this song probably when they were 22 years old i mean all these artists that are great music musicians they have all these great poetic wisdom filled songs when they're freaking 27 21 you know they're young when they come up with this stuff it's an odd gift that they get to be such seers in their youth no i don't think it's odd at all i think we're all seers in our youth but i think it's the very very rare person whose sight has any meaning i mean everybody's a seer it doesn't mean everybody's right and what they see You know, look, we all have our ideals, and that's good, and I'm glad it's like that. But they're also not beating you over the head with it and calling you names and saying you're ruining everything while they're telling you their ideals. There's a different thing, and and people have to speak from experience. That's the only thing wisdom comes from. That's my point, though. How do these... How do these musicians get this wisdom when they're 25 years old? They don't. They have ideals that ends up being wisdom later on. But at the time, it's just ideals unless they've lived through something. It's really frustrating to me to have people who've never experienced something telling people who have experienced something how they ought to handle it. You see it a lot with um, with medicine and stuff like that, too. It's not just the Whitney stuff. And I feel the same way about people who want to tell you stuff and they've never experienced it. You know, you have to... Not that it has to happen to you, but it has to you you have to have lived it in some way. It has to have happened to somebody you love or or there has to be some experience with something for the wisdom to to be meaningful, to be to be preachable to other people. Otherwise you're just an ass who thinks you know better than everybody else. 
Yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't know. Maybe when you're 21, you can read. You read a lot. You have less responsibility, so you can read. I mean, like the whole of the moon, if you go through the lyrics, it's a bit like almost like Icarus and Daedalus. The, the, they flew too close to the moon and one or to the sun and one flew too close to the earth and couldn't get take off. It's essentially that story that you get you try too far, try too hard for something and you burn out and fail. I don't know. It's very profound. And for somebody so young to come up with that, it's mysterious to me that they have that wisdom. And maybe they got the wisdom by looking at at the experience of their parents or their grandparents or maybe a course in history or something, which we don't like to teach anymore. But, you know, you can learn through stuff like that. But the point I'm making is you have to learn. And the only way to learn is through either your own experience or somebody else's experience. And most of us can't learn through somebody else's experience, not not deeply learn. We have to learn through our own experiences. And um, it's the wise person who can learn from other people's experiences. But, you know, this is a mix of, of that and then people throwing in here saying, you know, our parents are the ones who destroyed the, the earth. Why do we have to fix it? Well, that's just a perception. It's a way of looking at it. You can it's, look at they brought us all the good. Like we've already talked about this. We've, yeah. we've got a lot of good things, too. It's also a way of taking responsibility off of yourself for anything I'm glad, Michelle, that Sarah Tree nailed this. I'm glad that she got this. I mean, because it would have been easy. Because it's a little bit more complicated now to me. Like, oh, what a dumb show. If everybody, anybody ever asked me about the affair, I almost want to tell them you have to watch it to the end. When a week ago, I would have said, don't waste your time. Exactly. Jump off, jump ship, and run for your life. Me too. <laughs> you watch could almost say watch, one watch season begun. one and two and then go to 5.11 and... Yep. Call it a day. Absolutely. Me too. But I, overall, I'm glad. I'm glad we did it. It's. I've talked to people about doing podcasts on things, and it is kind of a Trojan horse just to be able to talk to people you enjoy spending time with, and you can inject your own life philosophies. And it's the water cooler, right? You can talk about whatever you want to. It doesn't have to be scene by scene only. So that served that role for us with this project on the affair so i'm glad we did it it was really fun and i don't know what's next better call saul sometime in a few months yep i think we have better call saul and um i don't know if we're going to get any more true detectives or fargos who knows but um that's it for the affair that's it it's been a joy i'm very glad to have done it with you Thank you. I'm very glad to have done it with you, too. (laughs) You've still got it, Mike. (laughs) All right, Michelle, we'll sign off on 511. We'll figure out another project soon. Okay, good. All right, thanks for everything. Thanks.